Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Startup Confessionals, where we interview startup founders and entrepreneurs in the Middle East and Africa. We'll learn about some of the biggest lessons these founders discovered on their journey from the personal to the professional and share how they keep themselves motivated. Today's episode is with Tarek Sakhar, a seasoned CEO and tech entrepreneur with a proven track record of innovation, disruption, and changing the status quo across the region. After a successful career in finance, Tarek followed his passion for tech and successfully founded and grew the top two online marketplaces in Kuwait, uh, named Q8Car and For Sale. He's got 15 years of successful tech business leadership under his belt, and I'm so excited to welcome him to the show. So welcome, Tarek. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> So Tarek, just to kick it off, I'd love for you to briefly share your value proposition of these two businesses that you've created in your words with your audience and a little bit of the background of your story before we dive into some of the other questions. Sure. So I started in 2006 and our value proposition was to try and help people sell their cars online as opposed to the traditional ways uh, where you'd have to either take it to a dealership and sell it or go to one of the um, one of these independent dealers in the country and just leave your car there, which was super inconvenient. And I, I mean, it sounds a bit ridiculous today, but back then that was kind of what was happening in Kuwait. And so that was really our value proposition. We just wanted people to be able to sell their cars from the luxury of their own homes and get as many people interested as possible and sell it as fast as possible. So that's how I started. And uh, why did you, you know, start this particular company and product? Like, did you have uh, interest in the automobile industry? Was it, you know, what was like sort of the the impulse behind it? Yes. So actually, I, I yes, I, I love I love this industry generally, and I love auto, I love automobiles, and the automotive space generally interests me a lot all my life. And when I moved to Kuwait, I was actually a banker. I had nothing to do with tech. And uh, when I went to buy my first car. It was an extremely painful process. And this this website, um, so actually, so Q8 Car existed as an IP, and we actually took it over, and then we did what I wanted to do. Um, and I, I, so I think I think what happened was when I was in the country and I tried to buy a car as an expat, it was a miserable experience. And I think that's that's kind of what, what drove it in the beginning. And then I always, in the US, I liked classifieds because I went to Pepperdine University in California. So I, I, like back in the day, I used to like getting these classifieds and opening them and seeing like uh, computers for sale, homes for sale, before everything went online. And I saw that there was, there was, a, there was a newspaper like that in Kuwait that was very, very strong and they really had no online vision at all. And, and I think coming from the US uh, to Kuwait, I felt that in a country like that, with that kind of GDP, and, and I mean, they, they move fast. I really believe that at some point there would be massive disruption, and I wanted to kind of place myself in a position to capitalize on it when it happened. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you started this, walk us through the journey. So you started in two, 2006. Uh how did you deal with some of the challenges that inevitably, you know, come up in building and growing a business? And then can you talk us through um, the funding experience? Because I, I think that you have not actually taken funding. And I just would love to hear your philosophy uh, on this, too. Sure, sure. So so what happened when I left 
banking to do this, it was uh, a pretty big risk because I mean I, I had done a lot of summer internships in Citibank, Wells Fargo, and a lot of in a, in a lot of companies. So for me to take a leap out on something like this that basically had no revenue and I was starting from scratch and there was no funding. I mean, uh, the the it, it's not like today. Today anybody who has an idea is able to raise a million dollars. It's gone crazy. So back then it, it was pretty much we're either going to make it work and build it slow or it's not going to work. So the, so when I did it in the beginning, to be brutally honest, I thought I would do it for seven or eight months and this would be a side project, kind of something that makes some secondary income. And then I would go back to my profession. And the reason the reason that was, was at that age, when you're 26, 27, um, if you spend a lot of time in a startup uh, and it fails, and, I, and I'm talking like years and years and years, Trying to transition back into your profession becomes a really big problem, and I know. I, I, I mean, a lot of people don't like to hear this because they always tell you you should you should continue to fail until you succeed. Maybe in today's climates like that, but in 2004 and 2003, especially from like the kind of family backgrounds I come from, if um, I mean, if, if by 30 you kind of don't know what you're doing, life becomes very tough. So I mean, I had studied to be in investments and in banking and business and stuff. So for me to take this leap. It was really, really, really tough for me. So I, I had no option but to make it work. And, um, and and I'm also somebody who doesn't get bored very quick. And I think this is something you know, people who, who try to do their own companies, I think they, you feel it's very magnanimous in the beginning that you work for yourself and you're doing your own thing. But what happens is six months down the line, when the results are not exactly what you want, uh, I think I think most people get very bored very quick, and 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 that's why you find it ending because they don't they don't get that gratification or kind of where they thought they would be, and they turn. I think in my case, what happened was I saw progress. Now it wasn't immensely fast, but there was progress. There was constant progress. I mean, we had one employee, and then we had three employees, and then four employees over a seven-month period, and we were gradually making a little bit more money. And I could see, for example, when I went to speak to the dealerships like Mercedes and BMW, and so, and, and, and by the way, in the early days, I used to go on all sales calls. So, I mean, I look, I, I, I have a lot of experience in the U.S. Uh, going to college, and I've worked in the U.S., so I think Coming back here, you know, the whole I'm going to hire someone to do it was not where it was at. It was in order for this to work, I need to firsthand, I need to be everything. Like in the beginning of CEO, I was every job. <laughs> okay. So right, right. I, yeah. So when I went to these dealerships and I saw in the beginning there was a lot of resistance. Five months later, there was a little bit more acceptance to talk about putting some of their cars online. And then I I did a lot of mistakes. For example, I outsourced to India in the beginning. And I didn't know that having your tech team in-house was the right thing to do. I mean, you're talking this is in 2004. So I I think the fact that there wasn't that much funding and this and the space was not crowded, and I'm not talking about my space, I'm talking about tech in general. In the Middle East during that time, you had real estate and stocks. Anybody you talk to, any Middle Eastern businessman, anyone, you try to pitch them anything, they're interested in either real estates or equity markets or the very traditional brick and mortar businesses. This was a real leap of faith at that time. So I knew I wasn't going to be able to get anybody to buy into this. It was going to be a bit of a long journey. So I had to make it profitable enough in order for it to justify my existence, in order for me to be able to live and then continue with it as long as I want until it hits. So what happened was the, the, the I think in 2007 or eight, when the iPhone came out, 
that was a real game changer for us because we we noticed that basically the app store was probably going to have a significant effect. We we could see it early on. So we went and we invested in doing an app and we were kind of the, one of the first apps uh, in the country for trade like this. I mean, there's, there's another app called Talabat, which is a food ordering one. It's quite, it's quite popular in Kuwait. Us and them were, were one of the beginning people to have apps and then actually get the online APIs, with it, which would allow people to actually pay for the listing. So you they would take a picture of the car and then actually pay. It's funny when I say the story now; it seems so normal because this is kind of what happens across the whole world. But it was it was it was really it was it was it was a very different time in in 2006 and 2007. And I could see things propelling and starting to get better. And I think what happened was as we started making a little bit more money, um, I realized that outsourcing tech was a terrible idea. And I'm Egyptian, so I was in Kuwait. So I, I actually went to Egypt and I found a vendor who I started working with in Egypt. And he he, he was an amazing guy. Went to MIT. I knew him actually uh, like he was a family friend since I was young and I was just a client of his. And I think as my business grew, I realized that in order to really, really do well with a product, you have to have your own tech team fully. So even though I was outsourcing tech to him, we had gotten big enough to where I needed his entire team. So I went to him and I said, listen, why don't you become my CTO and uh, I'll take over the the tech arm and you'll only build our product. I, I wanted to also ask how your priorities like shifted based on this, the new, the kind of like evolution of the company? So my priorities shifted to tech. You see, in the beginning, as a businessman, you're very focused on, I want to make money. I want to sell the car. I want the pictures to be like this. I, I didn't understand how the UI experience and how the, even even on, on websites, how experience makes a massive difference in business like this. So the UI, I mean, as, as we got better and better, we were able to, we were able to attract many more people. We were able to actually get people to where they wanted quicker. We were able to have the search optimized on the app. Um, so I think tech played, a, that my biggest shift was to, to, to not, not to deviate from business, but I'm, I'm very business minded. It was to kind of shift my business mind to understand that tech is super important in, in this business, even though I would consider our business tech enabled. And I think bringing somebody on like that, like Ibrahim, uh, my CTO, that was a real, I mean, that was a game changer for the business at the time he came on. And, and I think as we started to see the business grow in 09 and, and 2010, we, we were like, okay, listen so we're doing this for cars and this is great and i mean the business is doing great but there has to be an end game right like i think today people today people do series a and series b rounds with the hope that ultimately they'll do c and b and then either ipo or sell this is kind of the the line people follow and uh, I, I think actually in the Middle East, we have a little bit of a problem right now. I don't want to go off topic uh, in funding, but uh, a lot of people are building businesses today uh, to, to actually get funding and they're thinking about the exits and they're not really thinking about the businesses. And this is, I mean, now, I, now I'm an investor and I see this a lot. I mean, when I, when I talk to young guys who I've invested with and they come in and they have amazing ideas, but the problem is that the, the platform now is I want to get to X amount of users, then I want a series A round, then I want a series B round. And then ultimately I'm going to do some secondary, I'm going to make money. And then when I ask the question, like, when is the business going to make money? 
you know? And they're always like, no, 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 no. You build the users, you build, you build. And then ultimately money gets made. I mean, today Uber doesn't make money, right? So you even have Western companies that are worth 50 and $100 billion that are still not profitable. So I think the message that we're getting on our side here is just build it and they will come. <laughs> this is kind of what's happening. And I wasn't, like, I didn't have the luxury to do that. And I think that served me very well because as we grew, we decided, okay, so if we're just doing cars, why can't we end up doing everything? I mean, why can't we displace that newspaper so that we are the place where everybody comes to buy a home, to sell their iPhone, to for, um, buy a TV services, for example, like Angie's List. We could be the place where somebody gets, um, uh, sorry, I'm thinking in Arabic, uh, an, um, a carpenter, an electrician, like, like I want it to be that home. I want it to be Craigslist, Angie's List, all of those in one place. And the nice thing is we were really early, so we didn't have competition. I mean, Dubai, I think I think some of the more foreign countries, like Dubai for me, it's in the Middle East, but it's a very Western country. I think people really don't understand that. Like when they, when you go there, the, ex, the expat community really makes up a lot of the genetic makeup of the country. Like Kuwait, it has expats, but the locals are have a very strong presence and they're a very, they're a very big force in any business you build. So when you're building a product there, it has to be culturally um relevant like you really have to understand how they are you can't come put a western product and, and and expect to succeed so we were on the inside so we really understood it so we took it from the newspaper level up and what we did was we uh, for sale basically came a couple of years later we found the app name and we and we acquired it for not i mean not, not a lot of money we took the we took the app and all the experience we had with the automotive vertical we plowed into the horizontal so what happened is Tarek? yeah so a quick question. How did you monetize this? Like, is it through ads? Like, how are you able no, to, no, or you, no, do no. you take like a percentage of? So we, we initially in the cars, we were just charging a listing fee. So there were no free ads. So for you to put your car on our site, at, I mean, I'm talking at the peak after it, it developed three, four years later, you were paying about 30 to $40 for your car to come on the site. But I mean, cars were averaging 24 to 48 hours uh, in sale. So, I mean, people were happy to pay at that point. I mean, and I think what was really interesting too is we saw a lot of women using the platform. Um, they, they didn't necessarily put their own numbers. So maybe they put their brothers or their drivers or stuff. But we knew because at the time when they come to exchange the licenses, we could see the transactions. And we saw that a lot of, uh, we were very happy that we were catering to everybody, expats, locals, men, women. You know. But but to answer your question, it was a listing fee. And then the advertisement was secondary. So what I mean by that is 60% or 65% was was operational income coming from listings and the remainder as that because the site got so popular we had uh, brand advertising i mean you had like the leo burnett's like these kinds of agencies would come and say listen um this bank or this they, they want to do display advertising we weren't a huge fan of display advertising back then because they used to pay in three months and i think when the markets weren't mature back then they thought that they were kind of paying our salaries so i didn't want to fall victim to that so when i had 60 to 70 percent operational income and we were net profit uh, without the ads i was able to kind of choose who comes on and who doesn't and i wasn't held by the neck if that if that makes sense yeah, yeah wow that's fascinating uh so tarek what about the pandemic like how did the pandemic affect your business so Kuwait had a very, very harsh lockdown. I mean, one of the much harsher ones. Uh, th there was a period, I think, of a couple of months where you couldn't leave your house. So, I mean, these were not great times for me as a business owner. But what's interesting about this business, we learned how resilient it was. 
the two month, the, the the one and a half months of the total lockdown where you couldn't leave your house, we broke even. That was the first time we break even in 14 years. And I'm, I'm not saying we broke even in a, in a good way. I'm saying we were 60 to 70% net margins and we were very profitable. We went down to zero margins during that one and a half month period. And then as soon as they started giving us uh, curfews of four o'clock, five o'clock, six o'clock in the afternoon, the, the, the longer the curfews went, the business resumed really, really quick. So we actually... Um, I think in, in, a, in a span of three months after the harsh lockdowns, we were back at all-time highs. So it was really amazing because I think what happened is the online adoption really skyrocketed during that time. So everybody knew our application because, I mean, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but we, we sold 56% of the company to the National Bank of Kuwait's private equity division in 2018. So when I sold it to that, I mean, National Bank of Kuwait is a very famous bank in Kuwait. So everybody kind of knows the app. So everybody knows who we are. But I think there were a lot of people who knew us, but they didn't use us. And uh, maybe they had sold the car via a driver, but but they didn't really know the extent to the offering on the platform, on the bigger platform for sale. And I think what happened is during lockdowns, people were bored. I mean, they were home. They couldn't do anything. You know, kids were gaming. Kids were online. So I think even parents, they were just, they didn't know what to do. So we saw big spikes during that. And I think we kept a lot of these customers. So it was actually, I hate to say this because it was a horrible period in the world, but it, it was it was very good for business <laughs> with us. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. And what about, how do you know what to list and how do you work with like the end customer? I mean, obviously like it's a place where people can go purchase items. Um, but how do you know what people want? Like what sort of due diligence do you do on that end? And like, can you walk me through how you thought about that when you were building out the platform or was it just kind sure, of like, sure, sure. let's list. Sure. Yeah. But, but I just want to clarify. So we aren't a marketplace like Amazon because then that would, I mean, that would make your question very relevant, but, but I can't answer the question. So we are a user generated marketplace. What that means is we are, we have a, a, um, a platform where Everybody can list whatever they want. Our job is just to make sure that there's no illegal items on and that, for example, all the sections that where people want to list are available. We have to comb through. I mean, we have a big uh, staff that sit and look at everything that goes on the site so that we don't have duplicate listings. We don't have illegal items. I mean, you need to understand. Our, our platform has five or 6,000 items a day that are posted by people and in, in various things. So from automotive to property, to electronics, to animals, believe it or not, we have a lot of animals. I mean, people buy, get their cats and dogs from our site. We have eagles for sale. Like it's a, it's a very, it's a very diverse <laughs> platform. I think that's because of the culture though, the, the kind of things you see on it. Um, so, so from our side, we just need to make sure it's a safe place and it's a trustworthy place. So when you come on and you see an iPhone that's used, for example, you don't have any reservations. And I think our reputation um, with time, we got there and obviously selling to that, uh, selling to NBK Capital, that gave us a huge validation because I mean, to, to the market, to even people who really don't understand who we are, when you kind of see some, an institution like that who comes on board and, and, and buys 56% of the company, for a lot of people, it's validation that it's kosher. I don't know if that makes sense yet. So, so we, we, we are a very trusted trading place. We don't dictate the stuff that goes on, but we do have limitations on what you can, cannot put. And I mean, we, we're, we're, we have one and a half million active users in a country of four million people. So we have a, a, a lot of active users in that country. So the ministries, we work very closely with them and they tell us, for example, this can't go on, that can't go on. The, the nice thing about Kuwait is that your civil ID, and I think this is very relevant. So your civil ID 
is linked to any phone number you use. So you can't you can't like list on my site with with a phone with, with a with an email. You have to put your phone number. So the phone number you're using, if you do like if you list bad things or you post a terrible picture, my moderators will get it. But sometimes people will do it like two in the morning where we may have a three hour delay of moderation. Like and then somebody from the government will see it. At that point, you're putting yourself at harm because what happens is they can run your number and find out who you are. And if you're using somebody else's number, they'll get to that person. So it's really helped the platform self-regulate. And these are just laws in the country. So it's really helped us with the quality of the stuff that gets put on the platform. Wow. And do you guys have plans to expand outside of Kuwait or is it just relevant to Kuwait right now? No, it's relevant to Kuwait because this kind of business, uh, classifieds in general, if you look across the world, you'll find... Big companies like Naspers or uh, eBay, or they they have gone and consolidated all of the monopoly. Uh, okay, the word monopoly is not the right word. The, the 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 number one players in all these countries, because when you're a number one player in classifieds, the first mover advantage is huge. So it is very, very, very difficult to displace you. you. They can attack you vertically, meaning somebody can come and compete with me in automotive or uh, in property. But on the general bound, when you have all that traffic and people are trading, it's really, really diff- difficult to take uh, to, to change the value proposition. Because you think about it, you I, I'm taking very nominal money, like $10, $8 for certain listings, but I'm giving you 80 and 100 leads within three hours. So for most people who try it, they don't want to waste their time on a free platform. It doesn't It doesn't really make sense. So I think where we are right now, it just makes a lot more sense for us to defend what we call Fortress Kuwait. The GDP in Kuwait is very high. I mean, we've had astronomical growth for the last three, four years, and we, are, we charge in a lot of places. And I think our ultimate goal is to get to the transaction. What I mean by that is um, right now in automotive and property, you just pay a listing fee and that's it. I think as as time goes on and things get a bit more sophisticated, we want to have an escrow service. So we want to get to a point where you actually pay us for the value of the car. We hold the money in escrow. We make sure the car is okay. You do the uh, the screening process. Everything is good. Then we release the funds. When we become part of the transaction, we're able to take a fee. Once you get to a fee, uh, it's a very different level. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a small example. There's a country. There's a company called Trade Me in New Zealand. They are New Zealand has a very similar uh, population to Kuwait, four or five million, and they never went outside of New Zealand. And they, I mean, they they started before us, and obviously the the West New Zealand was a lot more sophisticated than Kuwait back at the time we started. But today, um, I think fifteen years into the business or eighteen years into the business, they were bought by Apex for one point six billion, and they generate about hundred million dollars of net profits. Ebeda. Wow. Yeah. So they're they're very very profitable businesses now. So, uh, Tarek, I want to actually switch gears and because uh, we're almost at time. Sure. I feel like there's a lot more questions to uh, drop in and ask you about. But uh, the last couple, I want to focus more on your motivation. Like, what is your motivating power? Like, how do you generate your motivating power to to kind of move forward through the business? And also, like, what inspires you? What are you reading right now that may have inspired you? Um so from a motivational standpoint, while I was growing the business, I was dead scared on failing. So I think I, I, I'm just someone who, who <laughs> I, I don't accept failure and I'm, and I'm unable to, to be satisfied with my, like every time we put a goal for a year, when we achieve it, we always have three or four year goals out. So I think what's happened 
part of the reason I sold to MBK was I became complacent. I think this is very relevant to your question. I felt when we got that profitable and we got that big, because I, I own most of the business at that time. I told my business partner, I was like, as driven as I am and as many, as much as I can read and as much as I can uh, like try and push myself, there's a point where when things are really, really good, you do get complacent no matter who you are. Okay. I think in the funding, in, in the funding scenarios, it's a little different because when you fund, you take people's money and the founders don't end up really making money until the end, right? Until kind of there's an IPO, there's success story throughout it all they're kind of on packages and they're roughing it until they deliver their promise i think with us it was a little different because when you become as profitable as we did uh like year five year six we're paying dividends and i'm i mean i'm i'm doing much better than i thought i would have ever done it in this so it was very difficult because I think money was the initial motivator and then after you achieve a certain uh a certain level, you start to think, okay, wait, this is the, this is not going to work. So when I when I brought the bank on, I think bringing them on, even though they they bought stock from me, I felt so responsible that an institution like this came on board. And and obviously, I mean, it's an institution, so they started having crazy, crazy, crazy requirements, and they helped me institutionalize the business and push myself to. For I'll give you a very small example. In hiring, for example, I didn't want to go out there and hire somebody who was ex eBay. I think as a founder who started the business, that I mean, didn't. Make a thousand dollars no matter how much money we were at it was hard for me to go out there and hire somebody with a very big package and a very big benefit I, I couldn't get into that zone and i think i realized when they came on how adding people who are even smarter than i am and more driven than i am adds so much value to the business like unbelievable value i love that i love that that you created the structure from that moment um, so Tarek, unfortunately we are, uh, at time, are there any resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you, learn more about, uh, you know, where they can find, obviously this, you, the business is in Kuwait, uh, but if there's any other platforms that, um, they could reach you on, can you share it? I'm on LinkedIn. So, I mean, uh, I'm on LinkedIn if anybody wants to reach out on LinkedIn. And then, I mean, if you Google the uh, the website, Q8 for sale, everything will come up. I think all the, the apps, all our information, our team, everything comes up online when you do that. And you can probably come out to us. To be very honest with you, Yasmin, we've been in stealth mode because of how profitable we were and how well we were doing. We really didn't do interviews. I mean, during the last 10, 15 years, I've never done an interview. I've never been in the newspaper. I've never gone up because I was too afraid to attract attention to the field I was in. So I was going very slow. Even when NBK came on board, the announcements were very quiet. We didn't want to, we didn't really want people to know what we were doing until we got to a point where we felt we were very defensive and it was very difficult for somebody to come in. And alhamdulillah, we, we, that's where we are kind of right now. So that's why, uh, I mean, LinkedIn, I, I just recently got on LinkedIn about six months ago. And I mean, I, I have people reaching, <laughs> people reaching out to me, even friends of mine for, that I haven't seen in 10 years. But I'm on LinkedIn and the company's on LinkedIn. I mean, that's probably the best way to reach out to us. Okay, perfect. All right. So we'll include also the uh, link to the website in the show notes. And uh, maybe one one last question about sure. your favorite book, uh, something that may have inspired you. Okay. I, I, it's funny. I don't know. My favorite book is The 48 Laws of Power. Oh, okay. By Robert I love Green. that one. Yeah. I, yeah. I, 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 love, I mean, I've read it uh, over and over again. It's a book I read when I was younger also. I just found it so relevant. And, and the way they use historical uh, events to justify quotes about how people react and how people do things, I, I love that book. And it gives me so much insight. And I think that understanding people 
is how you become a better CEO. I think now, I mean, my company, now we have 150 people. And, and I hate to say this, as much as I drive my business and strategy and stuff, I think my business has, it's gotten bigger than me. And I think that was my plan, where when a business is centralized on you as a founder, you are ultimately going to fail. When you're able to build a business that, I mean, if you, you know, this is this is terrible, but if you get hidden by a car or something happens to you and then the business dies, you were, you're still in the infancy phase. If you build a business that can survive you, I think that's when you've really built the business. And I think that's kind of where I am. And I think I, a lot of my readings have taught me that, where sometimes your ego eats you and you and you want everything to come to you. And I think for me, I've tried very hard to um, to make sure that that's not the case. And that's a book I love because I think one of my biggest jobs now is HR. So, I mean, a, a lot of the times for very big positions, I need to understand if some of these big guys coming into my company are the right guys. Because a lot of the time on CVs, they're great. They're amazing. They went to the right schools. They come in, but they just don't fit the culture of the business. And, and, and when they don't, I think they actually do more damage than they do value, to be very honest. Mm, wow. Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. Tarek, you are such a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Uh, we'll have to, yeah, well, hopefully we'll have another opportunity to chat again and um, go deeper on some of these topics. But thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know that you're calling in from Egypt, um, so it's a little bit late there, but My thank pleasure. you. And, <laughs> and for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening to Startup Confessionals. 